Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Master, Mother, Saints and Sages all, bless us with your presence here tonight. Bless us with your love. Bless us with your enlightenment. Make us one with thee. Now and forevermore. Amen. Listening to the music by Satya Sai Baba took me back to the time in India when we visited Puttaparthi and his ashram there and the tremendous experience that I had while we sat in this large ashram hall covered with gold gilded roof open on all the sides with a shining marble floor brown color we sat in meditation waiting for the master to come out as we sat in meditation somebody walked by and I felt the floor swim as if it was moving like waves of water well this was the first indication that I was not in ordinary state of consciousness before that I had had my hands down on the floor and could feel the vibration of this spiritual presence being generated throughout this entire building and area. Shortly after the individual had walked by and I experienced the waves of water as if the ground were like that, I was lifted up in consciousness and my point of vision went high above all the people there. There is perhaps seven or eight thousand people gathered there for darshan, which did not even completely fill up the darshan hall. It holds about ten thousand people in all. And in that vision, I felt the consciousness, the thoughts, the presence of all those who are present. It's difficult to describe such a state. But in that, I felt as if I were one with each and every person who was there. After some time, the thought came to me, this is how Sai Baba is able to give darshan to so many people all at once. And I felt his presence, I felt his mind, consciousness, guiding this experience as I was going through it. Suddenly then, my mind was transferred to the back of the hall and there was three people who were having a conversation and I could clearly hear their words but not just as words but the thoughts that were emanating the words and as I listened to this for some time it suddenly dawned on me that I had lost the larger consciousness of all those who were there and I thought to myself, oh, I've lost the universal consciousness. Sai Baba's own consciousness whispered to me, God is the same in the general as in the particular. And then my consciousness was switched back to the whole congregation that was there. 
and then beyond into a state of absolute light and being. With these words, I try to describe something that is essentially indescribable. Later on, as my consciousness began to come down, so to speak, I found myself in the presence in the room where Sai Baba was sitting. And as I knew that Swami Vishwananda was anxious that we have his darshan, he was not scheduled to come out for some more hours. And I knew that Swami Vishwananda wanted us to have his darshan. So I asked him if he would be willing to come down and give us his darshan. He immediately got up and started down the stairs. Now, I'd never seen this room before. I'd never known the structure or the layout of all the facilities there. But I felt that this was a room that was above the stage area. And later on, months later, I was told this was the exact spot where he resides in this room above the stage area. Anyway, as my consciousness came back into my body consciousness, I uh, opened my eyes and Swami Vishwananda turned around and he says, perhaps we should leave now because he hadn't come out. And I said, Swamiji, why don't we wait 10 minutes? So the 10 minutes lapsed, which he was glad to wait. And then he turned around and said, perhaps we should go now. I said, whatever you wish. Just then, electricity went out through the whole crowd, and you just felt it. There wasn't anything, any noise or anything, but you just felt this electricity go through everyone there. And suddenly, everybody's attention was riveted towards the stage. Swami Vishwananda and Larry and I were all looking for him, and suddenly Swami Vishwananda said, I see him. And I leaned out, and I looked around a pillar, and there I could see this large black afro-like hair around his head. He's quite a character. In an orange robe. And you could see the power emanating out, particularly all around his head, but all around his body. You saw and felt that power coming out. He's a bit of a distance away still, up on the stage where there is perhaps a hundred or more young men who were close disciples of his that stay there through the day. He came out and he chatted to a small group of those young men for a bit, moved on, and he stayed and he chatted quite a while longer with another group there. Then he came out directly toward us to the end of the stage and he looked directly in our way. Swami Vishwananda bowed deep down to the ground and we all pronounced to him. As he looked in our direction, he stood there for a few minutes and then he turned and he walked toward another direction in the stage and then back off the stage. It was a quick appearance. He didn't come out to the crowd as he oftentimes does. But I felt that he had fulfilled his agreement in terms of giving us darshan. So it was a wonderful wonderful darshan of a great God-man. I brought the email from Wynn. It was written on March 9th. Written in the way that Wynn 
speaks as well as he writes. I'm sitting here under the fan, comfortably and stylish in skivvy drawers, scribbling away as fast as I can. It seems like just the other day, Mrs. Tonkinum was greeting me as we arrived, and now it's almost time to leave this beautiful place. It's been a wonderful, uplifting three weeks. I can't put a finger on any one thing that's happened, but something is different. I am grateful to have had this opportunity in my life more later to face to face. Some of the following are in one or another of the airmail letters I posted yesterday, but I'll try to remember for one and all. Looks like the body is finally starting to get acclimated. Woke up last Sunday feeling good, not wiped out from the heat. It isn't any cooler, but it's okay now. There have been several days with a nice breeze. It helps. Last Sunday, three of us hopped into a scooter into town and took a bus from Kanangad up halfway to Kasaragad to see an old temple at the beach. I'm not exactly sure how old. Numbers run from 125 to 3,000 years old, depending on who you ask. A sadhu working at the temple said it predated Vasco da Gama. He founded the Portuguese colony of Goa by some 400 years. That would make it around 800 years old. I'd give his story a higher probability than either of the extremes. It's in awfully good shape to be 3,000 years old. A sad aside, the sadhu we spoke to in his 70s said his wife had died 20 years ago, and some time later his daughter had committed suicide. We had tea and coffee and a pit stop at a restaurant near the temple and walked the beach and watched the sun sink into the low clouds near the horizon. Then we talked about spiritual growth for an hour while it got dark, put our shoes back on, and flagged the bus back into Cunningham. Had chow at the restaurant off to one side, as I was too late to make it back to the ashram for dinner. After dinner, we found a rickshaw driver who took us back out here for rupees 20. His engine is about due for reincarnation. <laughs> It got maybe another 20,000 kilometers left in it. He spent a lot of time in lower gears and delivered us at the gate safe and sound. It was a nice afternoon and evening. And yes, we did get our feet wet in the warm Arabian Sea. Climbed the hill behind the ashram Monday morning. Met Sanath Kumar, one the men who works here, at 5.30 in front of his place. And we set forth. His knowing the way helped. It was dark, but my little pocket mag light kept us from falling into holes on the way up. I stopped and rested three times on the way. When you've got a 100,000 miler, you've got to humor it a little once in a while. And, uh, you've got to humor it a little once in a while. It took me about half an hour to reach the top, taking it easy, and it had lightened to where we could navigate without the torch. We could see the lights of fishing boats just off the shore up the north ways. Pretty soon the sun started coming up. 
tinting a sky full of wispy cirrus clouds, beautiful shades of pink. The weekend had been some sort of festival, I guess, and a temple down in the valley, the other side of the hill, was holding a combined puja and celebration with frenetic chanting, temple bells, and drums punctuated by the occasional firecracker. They were enthusiastic. Two friendly dogs came up wanting to play. They probably belonged to the caretaker of the nearby police station, police radio station at the top of the hill. Pretty soon we reluctantly turned back down the black igneous rocky hill to arrive for breakfast. It was a beautiful way to start the day. Gotta see this off pretty quick and get it up to the computer center so Sundar or Rama can key it in before dinner. Then it can go out first thing. Sanath and I are going to make a quick run into town a little after five so I can pick up a few of the comic book format renditions of Indian mythology at a bookstall. Many of you will remember the ones David had at the Whidbey Island retreat a while back. They look like something I can handle. Gotta also get some more rehydration salts and powdered talic. And then he goes on to talk about his flight tickets and return. It's been really nice visiting with the people I've met here, both the visitors and the folks who live and work in the beautiful place. I am leaving far richer for having met them and for the upliftment I feel within. It will be good to see all of you again. It seems like no time, a long time, since we've all been together. With all my love and God's blessings always, win. <laughs> it's wonderful to hear from him. Bible reading this evening comes from St. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. recent weeks I've been heavily involved in the life of Abraham Lincoln. For some mysterious reason I've been drawn to his life story, his words, his writings, his, um, the way that he conducted himself, and have gained a deeper appreciation and understanding for this great, great soul. It seemed important to me, and I didn't know the reason why when I started out researching about really a fundamental question for me. It may seem to be a political question in one way, but I think it runs far deeper. And the truth is it seems to have become a far deeper message 
than keeping the union together. Some years ago, as I thought on his life and our Constitution, I thought the only reason to block the secession of any states was because of the cause of slavery. It was a moral cause, and it was a moral stand that did not allow some states to secede. In one biography that I read recently, he proposed that the reason was that Lincoln saw no precedence for it in the Constitution. There is no provision for states to secede. There is nothing that blocked it, but they also didn't leave any means for it to happen. I was unsatisfied with that explanation, and as I was reading another book, I found something that was far closer to the truth. This is a book entitled Lincoln, His Words, and His World. And the editor's Michael P. Dinan. Two of Lincoln's other important qualities, perseverance and integrity, were recognized by almost all who knew him and can hardly be emphasized too much. Even men like Stanton, who at first lacked confidence in Lincoln, came to admire him for both his ability and his character. About Lincoln's mind, Herndon, who was Lincoln's law partner before becoming president, with perhaps some exaggeration, gives a clue. Quote, Lincoln's perceptions were slow, cold, clear, and exact. Everything came to him in its precise shape and color. No lurking illusion or other error, false in itself, and clad for the moment in robes of splendor, ever passed undetected or unchallenged over the threshold of his mind. He saw all things through a perfect mental lens. There was no diffraction or refraction there. Close quote. What were the products of this mind in its maturity? Three ideas seemed to be primary. He was a great admirer of the American Revolution, which he believed was, quote, the germ that which has vegetated and still is to grow and expand into the universal liberty of mankind, close quote. He also believed that only by preserving the Union could that freedom continue to grow for the benefit of all mankind? But uh, all of Lincoln's ideas were cast in the frame of reference of belief in divine providence. This belief is best expressed in his farewell address at Springfield. Quote, I now leave with a task before me greater than that which rested upon Washington. Without the assistance of that divine being who ever attended him, I cannot succeed. 
With that assistance, I cannot fail. Close quote. Thus, while Lincoln was a shrewd, practical politician of the first order, he always placed events in the context of their larger meaning. And, it, and how did such a man with such a mind lead the nation through its greatest crisis? There is no easy answer to this question, but in addition to a deep, pervading belief in providence, Lincoln seemed to have derived from his deep admiration for the Bible a belief in the power of the word. Lincoln, more than any other president, used language as an instrument of his mind and will. He was a master at shaping language to his purpose in persuading the popular mind and dramatizing his ideas for the American electorate. He was probably the greatest writer among American presidents. His prose style, admired by literary critics for its excellence, as well as by historians for its effectiveness, was not an accident. Again, the powerful beauty of the King James Version of the Bible was an influence, but as a youth, Lincoln also studied books on elocution, grammar, and rhetoric that were, in some important ways, superior to many of today's school books in teaching clear, eloquent, and convincing language. I debated with myself on sharing what I'm about to read to you. And so I guess the debate is over because I'm reading it. This came to me just the other day. I was lifted up in God through blessed inner vision I saw our 16th president of these United States, Abraham Lincoln. I had been drawn to him and his life in these recent days. One question that has remained with me is the question of his belief that the southern states had not the right to secede. In one of my readings of his life and words, it stated he believed the message of the Revolutionary War would spread freedom to all mankind. Also, it was his firm belief that it required the union of all the states to make that message spread and that all this was according to the providence of God. I spoke to him in this vision and he obliged me an answer for which I am eternally grateful. Mr. President, I began feeling a thrill and a privilege to address him as such. How did you come to know the unique role of this nation through a vision? Abraham Lincoln, yes, although I did not recognize it as such at the time. It came to me while in deep reverie. Myself, if you did not recognize it as a vision at the time, how did you gain such great faith in it? Abraham Lincoln, I knew its rightness. Myself, why were you 
granted this vision, Lincoln, because I would receive it. Did you know its author? I am now reconstructing the conversation and feel sure of some of the words and the gist, but not some of the exact wording of the thoughts. Did you know its author? Lincoln. Jesus was involved in my getting it. And did you know it was him? Lincoln. A look of deep humility came over the president. No, it was beyond my conception then. I have been so drawn to your life and your work recently. Can you tell me why? Lincoln. It is important for you to understand it. Am I to be a part of this work? Lincoln, we are all part of it. Then I was shown a scenario where Abraham Lincoln was involved in a legal case prior to becoming president. He showed me how he asked of a witness only one question. The witness could have gotten more he could have gotten more useful information from that witness, but would have had opened up a line of questioning by the other lawyer that would have hurt his case. It revealed to me what a brilliant tactician Abraham Lincoln was. I then ventured some questions about my role in the work. It became muddled and kind of blank. I then changed my focus. Is there anything else you would like me to know? Lincoln, it is important for you to know this, what we have been talking about just now. I felt deep gratitude. I bade goodbye to that great and loving soul, a man of God. I felt like I've been on a very interesting journey lately. One, my question is this is a true vision or not? I can only answer by saying that I felt the power and the truth of it in the depths of my being, in every cell of my body, and my being resonated with this experience. It was something unsought on my own part. And indeed, when I say I felt great gratitude about this, indeed I do. And even on my way here to reconstruct some of the last of this conversation, I put myself into that state of meditation, felt that upliftment, and felt the greatness of that soul whom I communed with. Such things are possible on our way toward our own God consciousness. One time, a student asked Master about a saint that he said he had been talking with the other day. And Master said, well, I don't remember which one that was. He says, so many come to me. The individual couldn't remember who the saint was. He said, all I have to do is think about a saint and their life and perhaps I have some question about their life, and they come to me and they show me all about their life. So this is a wonderful 
experience that you can have. It is better off that we not seek out these kinds of experiences, but rather that they come to us as a part of our own unfoldment. There is a great message, and I can't say that I have truly come to the bottom of it in terms of these experiences and what I was shown inwardly. Abraham Lincoln, truly one of our greatest presidents, presidents, endured such strife, such difficulty, such sorrow, that I think only a Christ-like soul could have come through such a thing intact with his integrity and with his compassion and with his forthrightness. It is a tremendous thing, the formation of this nation. It was founded on principles that are said to be self-evident and founded upon God, that all individuals have a right to the pursuit of freedom, of life, and happiness, and that government is instituted so that each every, and every individual may have that. Now this is a tremendous shift in the ways that government is perceived. In the past, governments were oftentimes formed around individual or individuals who ruled it for their own pleasure. And if the little guy got any benefit, so much the better, but it wasn't necessarily the intent. It was for the ruling class to have theirs. But through time, we have come into a new era. And as we approached the Dwapara Yuga, we came into this new covenant between a government and its people and their God. Now this happened around the time of 1799 as we entered the cusp of the Dwapara Yuga. And so I think it's no small accident that this inspired um, form of government came into being. And it's not that individuals or the nation as a whole has lived up to these ideals, but the ideals were set out as something to attain, something to strive for, knowing that it was not easy, knowing that it would be a difficult path to actualize the words that had been written, but that the words conveyed tremendous truths. And to the degree that each one of us live up to these truths is to the degree that we benefit. Now, we have benefited in a material way, in tremendous ways. It is said by one institute, I believe it was the Cato Institute, that the United States has shown more material advancement in the last 100 years than all the rest of civilization has through all recorded history. That's something to think about. It is not that material advancement 
denotes a superior culture or a superior spiritual culture. But it does reflect that there are certain principles that are effective in bringing about the freedom and the safety and the upliftment of all mankind. Now there are many, many ways, and they are self-evident today, of ways that we fall short of this great goal. It says in these words that Abraham Lincoln had great integrity. And I think this is one of the things that is most missing in our day-to-day culture. If people act with integrity, they cannot help but institute the golden rule that we do unto others as we would have them do unto you. And so when we treat people this way, we treat them with truthfulness, with openness, with an honesty and ultimately combines to integrity. In our business life, in our home life, in our social life, in our spiritual life, it is so important that we treat others. Jesus equated to love thy neighbor as thyself to the first commandment, which is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, strength, mind, and soul. That's how important it is. That's how important it is that we treat each other in a way that reflects our highest good, not only for the individual, but for the collective. Now, when individuals go out and earn money, this is a good thing. One of the things that Mother taught me over time was something that took me a while to get. For a while, I believed, I think, as many or perhaps most people do, that economically things are fixed. There's only so many resources. There's only so much to go around. And so the pie is only so big. The spiritual perspective is quite different. It sees that this world and all the worlds about us are manifestations of spirit. And that as we think, so we become. I remember back in the late 1970s, and there is much being said about America having been in its greatest um, epic earlier and that we had to get by with less. And there's politicians who are talking to us that we all had to learn to get by with less. There was less in the world. There was limited resources and etc. Mother did not agree with this idea at all. Rather, she thought in terms of growth, in terms of abundance. And one of the things that she loved about Ronald Reagan was his positive vision of the people and our future. And indeed, there was a turnaround while he was president in the 1980s. Before that, people in general disparaged this country and they thought that it was in its downhill slide. Through the 80s people started to feel positive. They started to feel optimistic. 
They started to feel proud, pride for their country. And that grew into a resurgence and a renewal of this country, and we enjoy the material benefits of that today. We need to continue with that, to see that this nation, as all nations are, there's nothing peculiar about this nation that cannot be had by all nations, that this nation has a light about it, that it was inspired from God to fulfill a destiny that is tremendous in this world. It would be difficult to imagine the history of this world if the United States had not been held together as one nation, that it had not been able to help during some major world wars, that it had not been able to stand against tyrants of many different names and types, that the world is seeing more freedom now, more democracy now, than it has ever seen in its recorded history, that prosperity is starting to spread to many, many countries. But the greatest aspect of this, the greatest part of it all, is this complete and absolute reliance upon providence, upon God. Without that spiritual faith, without that sense of indebtedness and humility, then the ego takes control in individuals as well as in nations. Suddenly, people only live for themselves. There is no higher consciousness. There is no higher mindedness. People do not reach out for greater visions. They do not reach out for the light which is within themselves. As Abraham Lincoln quoted Jesus, a house divided itself cannot stand. So internally, a house divided within ourselves cannot stand. If there is a part of us who is in slavery, if there is a part of us that is tyrannized by the human ego, then no happiness can be had. No God consciousness, which is the author of all happiness, of all blessedness. Blessedness means the same thing as bliss. And so no bliss, no upliftment is possible as long as a house is divided against itself. And how many of us can say that we are truly not at war with ourselves? Isn't it true that war constantly rages within? That there are those forces that are the puny self, so to speak, the part of us who wants to be small, wants to be covetous towards other people's things, wants to hold on to anger and revenge and hatred, wants to hold on to small-minded ideas. But really, when you think about it, when you hold on to it, who's doing the holding? And who has who? Because eventually, those forces become tyrants of your own house. And you are no longer a house of God, but you're a house of thieves. 
thieves who steal away your life energy and fritter away after lower standards, after lower things. Thieves who come in and rob you of your life, of your love, of your energy. If we watch any baby, any small growing child, we see the inherent joy that they have. We see their desire to learn. They see their openness to the world. But life wears us down after a while, doesn't it? It starts to take us down, and we start to grow suspicious of other people. We start to think the worst of them. We start to grab things just for ourselves. And so this tyrant gets more and more energy. It starts to rob us of our integrity. Now when we turn our life back towards this inner spiritual beatitude, this civil war heats up for good because those forces from the south of our own being, those lower conscious centers in the lower part of the spine, realize that it's their doom. And so they fight with increased vigor, knowing that if they do not take the day, then they will be swayed over and it will be brought all under the merciful theocracy of God consciousness. So that we experience this civil war should not surprise us. That we feel opposing forces coming at us, that we feel overwhelmed with them at times, is oftentimes true. But the thing is this, as it says here in the first chapter of John but as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name what is it to receive this Christ Spirit? It is to, on a human level, to open yourself to that omniscient consciousness to come within your own being and expand your own being so that you open yourself to that wonderful, omnipotent Spirit come within you and transform you. So that is what it is to do mentally. Physically, it begins to transform this body. All the cells of this body gets transmuted and brought into another level of vibration and consciousness. Spiritually, it is to break the small encasement that holds this human self separate from the universal divine spirit and it lifts you into a consciousness that is beyond your current knowing you feel as if your spirit is united with that omniscient spirit and you sail over omnipresent skies you feel that spirit within every particle of space you feel as if you are lifted up into that consciousness and you are identified with it 
And there is no difference between you and that. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. What is it to become a son of God? We are said to be made up of two aspects, a son of man and a son of God. The son of man we are well acquainted with. It is living in this body. It is being of body consciousness. It is living in the restraints of a small identification of the ego. I am this person. I belong to this body. I have a certain occupation. I have a name. I have a certain identity that's generated around this body consciousness. That is the Son of Man. The Son of God is that omniscient, omnipresent spiritual consciousness of which we are a part, but we have fallen asleep to. And so he gave them the power to become the sons of God, to become as Christ was, as Jesus was, who became the Christed one. That is, he reunited himself, or he achieved yoga, the power of union, with that all-powerful, all-knowing consciousness. And it said, he gave them the power to become the sons of God, even the belief to them that believe on his name. What is his name? That is the sound of Amen, the sound of Om. When you hear that sound in your right ear or from behind your head, you are lifted up in consciousness and you expand with that sound. That sound also comes to you as light and perhaps you see that light and when you see that light, you allow your mind and your consciousness to expand with that light into its infinite depths. It can also come through feeling the vibration of that sound. And you feel that vibration, and through your union with that vibration, you are lifted up into that consciousness, and you feel your identity with it. When you have fully eliminated the human ego or that which sees itself as being separate from that all-powerful, all-knowing consciousness, and you come into absolute union with that consciousness, then you have become a son of God, a resurrected man, going from the living dead of human consciousness This is our path. And this is some of the deeper meaning around as in the inner, so the outer. But this tremendous conflict that Abraham Lincoln came to be a part of, where he received a vision, although he was not yet to the point where he could receive it as a vision. He received it at least in part through the auspices of Jesus although he was not yet of the mind to do that, to know that, rather. But he saw the rightness of it and that intuitive conviction, that absolute knowing, sustained him 
through one of the worst conflicts that all mankind has seen. And truly, as a president, I think, one of the worst times that this nation has ever been through. So my respect, my awareness of this great God-man, I believe that he was, who came to this country to help it into a new era, brings to us its legacy today. But not just about a nation, but it is within you too. As you wage this civil war, as you do it with integrity, as you do it with character, as you do it with strength, here is a God-man whom we can look to as one who struggled, who persevered, and finally overcame. And isn't that what we're all here for? Is to struggle, to persevere, and to overcome by the grace of God as he gave in full measure that credit. questions or comments about what I've spoken about tonight or your own sadhana at this time, this would be a time to ask. that clarity of vision, but I think he represents more clearly Arjuna, the one struggling on the battlefield to fulfill his dharma, his destiny. I think he was in far more communion with the Christ than what he even recognized or knew. He would go into deep states of reverie and... Uh, oftentimes be lost to the world. He would be in the midst of a room. People would be talking all around him. He was uh, very informal in his way, and he would have his legs hanging over the edge of a couch or a chair, kind of draping himself. He was very tall for the time, six foot four, at a time when uh, most men were maybe five, seven or thereabouts. So he was a giant of a man at that time. And he would drape himself over the furniture, and he would just be absolutely lost in thought. Tremendous, deep, focused attention, where I think he communed with his deeper self and with the Christ spirit that was helping to work out the destiny and the karma of this nation. 
it is interesting that there are individuals who have that innately. It's as if they brought it with them from another lifetime where they learned it. They don't know consciously all the ins and outs of it, but they know how to enter into these deeper states. And through that deepened state of concentration and focused attention, they get insights and understandings into human nature, into the sciences and mathematics and other fields of endeavor. And you see those individuals enter into very deep states of meditation or concentration. And then sudden insights come to them. Now, they don't always understand or recognize the mechanisms by which these things are operating, but they operate it intuitively through some inner knowing. So you can't always tell the development of an individual by their pursuit of a formal spiritual path or not. You find people who are highly developed spiritually who, as Lincoln did, did not adhere to any particular religion or even any particular spiritual path. And so he had great belief and reliance upon God, as most men under great pressure do, and even before that he did. But it was not necessarily formalized in a religion or by him going to church. He rarely attended church. And yet when he draped his legs over the end of that couch and was in those deep states of reverie, he was in his church, his inner church, and he was communing with his God. that apply to us? I think we all come against crossroads at times in our life when we feel like running away, when we feel like not fulfilling the purpose for which we came. We can see, you know, well, isn't it better just to let those states go rather than have this terrible, terrible war? It would be very enticing to think that way. And so, too, in events in our own life, we can see, well, It'd be a little easier going this direction. And, well, what would it harm, really? You know, it, everybody would be happier, wouldn't they, if I didn't make a fuss about this. And yet, what our soul is really calling for us is to stand firm and to continue on. But we can only know this by deepening our own reverie, deepening our own meditation, and going into that state 
where we can stand on that firm ground doesn't make life easy. In fact, oftentimes, it makes it more difficult. The civil war rages both within us and all around us. We are not called to an easy time of it. Otherwise, they wouldn't call it sadhana. They'd call it vacation or something like that. (laughs) Sadhana is sadhana because we're on the battlefield. We're on the cross. And we're carrying that cross. And we are best served if we fully acknowledge that to ourselves. So many religions, so many spiritual teachers like to promise a life of easiness. You know, you can make all the money that you want and you can have all the friends that you want and all the things that you want. And true enough, there are great laws of mind. And it benefits us to learn those laws of mind by which we can attract abundance and all the rest of it. But we are assured by Jesus that we are given everything that we need if we are adhering to truth and that we will always be serving the highest and we will always be served by the highest. The deeper, more inmost truth is that we are on this battlefield and we've come for that purpose and particularly all those who are hearing this. You would not be here unless you are being called to that higher purpose. Now, we have free will as human beings, and we can reject it. But believe me, it is at our own risk and it is our own peril that we run away from it, that we do not stand up on the battlefield and take on life as we know we must. So with bravery, with integrity, with perseverance, We can march forward, and what we are promised in the end is that we have and are given the power to become the sons of God. If you are truly operating from the perspective that God is the doer, then, of course, you can pray to God to deepen your own meditation. But then who is asking who in that case? Most of us live in a state of consciousness where we perceive ourselves as the doer. And even though we are called upon to see God as the doer, Nevertheless, most of us live in a state of mind where we have choices. We can choose to get up a little earlier in the morning and meditate. Or we can choose to roll over and go back to sleep and run ourselves short of time before we have to go. We can choose to set aside a longer period of time at different intervals in order to spend longer amount of time in meditation. 
we can choose to try to concentrate more and to let our mind wander less. We can choose to focus our mind in devotion upon God and deepen that state of devotion. Those are all things that day to day, moment to moment, we can make choices around. Now ultimately, it is God who's making that choice within us and he's awakening that question within you and he's deepening your own sadhana by doing it. So it's his play. <laughs> so if we approach things from monism, that is non-duality, then who is asking the question and who is hearing the response? If there is only one, and there is no questioner and there is no questionee, there is only one. There is only one. So as long as we see ourselves as two, as separate, then we can make the choice all through the day. We have that free will. And yet it is divine consciousness within us who's awakening. And we can pray for that divine consciousness to increase its vigor. We're unsatisfied with its lackadaisical nature of wandering and meandering towards God. We want to head long, charge into the fray, and make it to the goal. And if you see yourself completely at the mercy of that grace, then pray to that grace that it increase its vigor so that we all might become the sons of God. Does that answer your question? Another answer that came to me while we were singing the Sri Ram to your question came from Ramakrishna. He said, Do not have an ego. But if you do have an ego, make it a lover of God and a servant of God. Let us pray. O oh, Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, I feel the wonder and the beauty of Thy glorious presence in every part of my being. My heart is bursting with my love for Thee. I kneel in adoration at thy feet and surrender myself to thee. I feel the power of thy perfection surging in every cell of my body. My mind and my intelligence are radiant with thy healing light. My soul is filled with the ecstasy and bliss of my communion with thee. I and my Father are one. Blessed Spirit, I am he. Blessed Spirit, I am he. Oh.